It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here with probably the most important Security Now we've ever done. He's looked at all of the testimony, all of the information, and he says he's figured out exactly what the NSA is doing to spy on us. Steve breaks it down next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 408. Recorded June 12th, 2013. Surveillance State. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit gotoassist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to proxpn.com twit and use the offer code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your privacy and security online. And this is, I think, a long-awaited edition, at least a whole week long awaited edition of Security Now, because there's been some stuff going on, and everybody I know has said, get Steve Gibson to explain it all. Steve Gibson's the explainer-in-chief and the uh, host of Security Now, and each week he joins us to talk about security. And I would guess this week you're going to talk about uh, the NSA spying prism, things like that. Yeah, we have to. Um, I got, just as you did, a huge... Uh, influx of people saying, you know, Steve, what do you think about right. this? What does this mean? Um, you know, what you know, what do we know? What can we presume? And and one of the most interesting things that for me occurred is that, and I've I've watched every show, I've watched all the Talking Heads, I've read everything that was there because I was interested in this, and you know, and and so. What I saw was a way for all of these pieces to fit together, for it to be absolutely true that Apple and Facebook and Google and Yahoo and so forth are honest in their denial, yet the slides that the NSA showed saying they had direct access to their servers are also correct. That is, there is technology which the NSA has employed. We have evidence of it. Uh, the EFF has been involved in some prior lawsuits. We have testimony with photos. And when all of the pieces clicked and like came together in my mind, I said, oh, now I know why it's called PRISM. Ah. I, I know where the name came from. It ah. came directly from the nature of what they're doing. And so while I have no... Obviously, I'm not. I have no allegiance or connection in the past or present to any of our three-letter agencies. I have no um, specific knowledge of this, but but looking at all of the evidence, 
what I can offer our listeners this week is an is something so compelling that they will know as well as you will know, Leo, that this is what's going on. Good. And and it tells us about the technology and and but I want to I want to lead off because I know that many of our listeners have not been following this as closely as I have. So there at the beginning of uh, of ABC's This Week show on Sunday morning with George Stephanopoulos, he had Glenn Greenwald on who broke the story with the with, with the Guardian, and it was such a short, succinct statement from Glenn that I wanted to put that into the podcast at the beginning, and then I've, I also want to. There's there's one of the things that I'm hoping could come out of this is that that we could give Congress the right questions to ask because there was there's a, a glaring testimony back on March 12th just not even well exactly actually it's the 12th today right so exactly three months ago where a senator asked point blank I mean just directly to our director of national intelligence. If the NSA was collecting any information on millions or or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of Americans, and James Clapper said no, so anyway, so anyway, I want to I want to sort of fill in for people who haven't been following this as closely as we have, um, and then talk both about the the first program, which is the the telephone metadata collection. I've it's been like annoying me when I see people on the news saying, oh, well, you know, that's just metadata. That's not the phone conversations, blah, blah, blah. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means and what the power of that is. And it's funny because I had already written down in my notes early in the weekend that one of the one of the significant factors of this was the history that was collected. And then in his amazing video, Edward Snowden said that. So I, I grabbed that little 46 seconds of the video to also play. We might as well have it in his voice, the person who, who disclosed this and is now on the run. Uh, and we have actually not much news except for that. Uh, uh, very little. But uh, I think we've got a great podcast, and I think people are going to find it extremely interesting when, when they get what's going on and yeah. i think i think i know what's going on well that's exciting that's very interesting because and i'm very interested to hear what you have to say and no one has no one i mean i've been watching everything listening to everything nobody has has figured this out apparently and I, i'm gonna offer what is probably the answer wow steve's got it you're gonna hear it in just a second before we go on though let me talk a little bit about our friends at citrix and uh the sponsor of our show Go to assist at go to assist.com. If you're in the um, IT business, you may be interested in go to assist. It is, well, I know you're going to be interested. You probably heard about go to assist. It's remote access, of course. Everybody's heard about that. In fact, it's the number one remote access solution in the world uh, used by more IT professionals because it allows you to do things like uh, unattended support, multiple computers, uh, eight sessions at once unlimited, you know, for a month, low monthly fleet. All of this, by the way, is cloud-based. You're not going to run software on your system. Remote diagnostics, two-way screen sharing, annotations, tools, Mac and PC. You can even do uh, support from a uh, an iPad. I mean, there's just so much to talk about. 
But I want to emphasize it's not the only thing that GoToAssist includes. You also can get the great monitoring solution. Now, this is really cool. You run the crawler on your client's network. It will detect not only all the hardware on the network, but all the software, too. You will have a complete inventory of everything running on the network. But that's not all. It's not a, a little passive inventory sheet. You can also build a dashboard. With some, They have built-in modules you can con- configure your own very easily to track the performance of everything. Everything from network performance to how much toners left in the printers to how many... How many hard drives are almost full? And that way you can be proactive and solve problems before they even happen. You can get alerts by instant messenger, SMS, or email, letting you know, hey, something's going on here. Uh, And then you go to the remote support module and fix it. You can also uh, track um, uh, problems with the service desk module. This is the third new module. Problem management, change management, release management, a complete knowledge center for your clients and your staff. I just think this is an amazing all-in-one cloud-based tool for anyone in in support or IT. And if you want to become a managed service provider, uh, you know, there are other tools that do this, but none as affordably, as effectively. Citrix has been doing this for 10 years. 10 years. Go to assist.com, and always they add new stuff as part of it. It's just great. Try it free for 30 days. All three modules free for 30 days, just then you you be the judge. Use the offer code SECURITY so Steve gets credit. Go to assist.com. 30 days free when you use the offer code SECURITY. Security now on the air. Steve Gibson, Leo Laporte. Let's get the uh, news out of the way, and then we can start talking about uh, <laughs> well, prison. It's going to be pretty quick, actually. Uh, the only thing that happened that I noticed, because uh, I actually did have my attention rather intensely focused on all of this, Uh, is that we just crossed the second Tuesday of the month. So all of our regular listeners know that means that Microsoft issued a batch of patches. And these were about as non-dramatic as any could be. So I'll simply remind our listeners, rather than going into any detail or depth, to update Windows. When I turned on my Windows 7 machine to fire up this Skype session with you, Leo, I saw 15 updates were uh, offered to me. So... Uh, everyone should uh, find time to do that. We know that updating in a timely fashion is increasingly important because there's a a window now between the time that patches are released and and people act on those released patches. The bad guys are able to figure out from the patch what the vulnerability was if it was not previously disclosed, and and these were not, um, and then take action against people who have not yet patched that. So this is, you know, it's becoming important to, to do it as quickly as you can. Uh, and I was happy to see Apple, by the way, at, on the, during the keynote of the Worldwide Developers Conference say that iOS 7 will be updating its apps uh, just in the background and more or less continuously. That's wonderful news since I had 86 that I hadn't updated. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, even, it's John, if it, even John McCain was pissed off. So really, at this point, I think it's time to time to fix that. And we're glad that they did. Yeah. And I so, presume anyway. we'll see it. But I haven't looked at it yet. Maybe Jeff has. There is a way to turn that auto update off, right, Jeff? I think there is. So you get to the choice. But the, but the default should be on, I would expect. Um, and then the only other thing I have of news also is from Microsoft. It came in via a tweet from Fausto Cepeda. Uh, who alerted me to a fix-it which Microsoft 
published, which allows Java to be disabled in IE. So this is new for Microsoft. They have They've never given us a, look, you know, we understand Java's a problem. We're going to let you disable it in Internet Explorer. This is, I think, useful also because there are many people who are stuck in corporations where they have to be using Java, but not necessarily in their browser. And they also have to be using IE, so they can't use tools like NoScript and Firefox and, and, and tools to, to control Java in the, in the, in the browser's uh, other browsers that have done a better job of controlling that. So uh, if you Google Java when you cannot let go is in the tail of the <laughs> URL, uh, that will get you to Microsoft's fix it. Uh, and if I would recommend, for example, since we all have IE installed in Windows because we don't have a choice, we're, even though we're not using it, we're typically using Firefox or Chrome or Opera or whatever, uh, You, it makes total sense to disable Java in IE. So this just turns off Java, sorry, turns off IE's invocation of Java for web applications, but it and only affects IE, won't mess up your other browsers nor Java on your desktop. So certainly a useful thing to do. Now, the acronym search has already begun uh, for PRISM. And although it is not an acronym, as you'll have me explain later, I know where the word, I know why they called it PRISM. Um, the, the first one been submitted by Barry Spar a couple of days ago, who said PRISM stands for people really interested in spying on me. So that's pretty good, I thought. Uh, and Leo, I did want to mention just for the people who don't watch iPad today, I watched it with you and Sarah last week. Thank you. And the, the free application, Dumb Ways to Die. <laughs> Hard not to hard not to hard to stop playing it, isn't it? Oh my god. It <laughs> a, is so It's a fun game. <laughs> it is just it's dumb, but it's fun. Yeah. It's just a hoot. I yeah. tweeted it and I didn't realize it also works on iPhones. Uh I would yeah. think you need a little more surface area. So I like it on my iPad. But the music and the yeah. and the and the graphics and I mean <laughs> somebody with a great sense of humor put this thing together. So and it's free, which is not even yes. any in app purchases or anything. It's just free. And free. it's not a huge monolith like some of those astronomy apps or the elements yeah. or no, something where it's like, play. Oh my God. It's yeah. it was so I wanted to recommend it. <laughs> Dumb Ways to Die from the <laughs> iTunes store for anyone who has an iOS. It's just a kick and not hard to play. I, uh, I'm, I did get a thousand points and I unlocked the quote music video unquote. Have you seen that? No, Leo? I haven't gotten that far. Oh God. It's worth getting to a thousand okay, points. I will. And look at I'm the close. music video because it's, it's what's wonderful. It's just the silliest game ever, but oh goodness, but it's addictive. And, it's fun. You can't stop playing. Well, it's just, it. yeah. yeah, it's, it's simple. There's also shoot something else I ran across that I, that I, you know, the problem is I've got so many icons now that when I buy something, I can't find it. And, and so, and, you know, and so, yes, you can search for it. Right. But then you still don't know where it is in the, you know, in your, in your 12 screens. I, of iOS scroll. is effectively a desktop where you put all your icons and that's it. They're just, <laughs> I was it's like a Windows user has everything on the desktop. I was happy to see a feature that got applause during the worldwide developer conference. I also watched your coverage of that on Monday morning, which I thought was okay. great. Yeah. Um, that you that that groups or folders or whatever you call them can now be scrolled. 
So I was like, oh, good. Yes. So I could have a games or puzzles, and I could put them all in there rather than puzzles one, puzzles two, puzzles three, because they used to fill up, and then you couldn't put any more in. So, so that's uh, that's good news too. So, yes. I did have a little comment about near field communications. Uh, I got a tweet from someone uh, in Cranbourne, East Australia, who said, listening to episode 407 and NFC, often get multiple cards present when I use NFC, even if my wallet is over four feet away from the reader. So that's possible. It's radio, Leo. It's like you've been a ham. And so you're aware of like when atmospheric conditions are just right, suddenly you can receive Russia from your porch, uh, whereas normally you wouldn't be able to. You know, I mean, you know, ionosphere (laughs) and so forth. I can see Russia from my porch. (laughs) So so, um, the idea is that radio is flaky. This way, it, I mean, it doesn't actually ever die. It's not like there's a cliff or anything or an optical beam where, I mean, it's radiated. And so, and, and we know from, from all the experiments that have been done, for example, with Pringles cans and Wi-Fi antennas, that you can make a, an amazingly strong directional Wi-Fi antenna out of a Pringles can. So, 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 so my point is that it is really, it's fundamentally a bad idea to to use near field communications for something as important as as payment where someone can as we talked about last week walk past you and pull money from cards that you have in your wallet it's just it's you know broken at birth <laughs> bad idea bad idea bad idea but i have a good idea i got a nice note actually the subject was unbelievable uh, from a listener of ours, Elliot Fleming, who's in Providence, Rhode Island. He said, I've listened to security now for a long time, but I've not had occasion to use Spinrite before. And then he says in parents, please make a Mac version someday, somehow. Uh, and he said, and, you know, that's that's going to happen. And he said, my daughter's Windows XP Dell laptop, so I guess daughter's using a w- Windows and he's on a Mac, um, was being sluggish. So I did a system restore. This had the unexpected result that the laptop would now not start even in safe mode. Whoops. It would start to load Windows, go to a blue fail screen, which we all, of course, know as the blue screen of death, uh, and restart. Dell's diagnostic suite said everything was fine. Check disk from the XP install disk found a single error on their hard disk. I knew I could reload Windows, but thought it might be worthwhile to preserve the files and applications on the computer. And I'm sure his daughter would agree. So he says, I bought Spinrite, burned it to a CD to boot the laptop, and ran Spinrite at level two. It found errors in two sectors and recovered as much data as possible, taking about two hours. When I restarted the laptop normally, well, we know how this turns out. Windows told me that the system restore was successful. Um, uh, insert bitter laugh here. <laughs> he says, <laughs> it is unbelievable to me that you could have programmed this much functionality in such a tiny program. 
Could you use a Linux loader to access the hard drive level on a Mac somehow? Of course, now he's trying to solve how to get SpinRut running on his Mac. Consider plea for Mac version repeated here, he says in parens. In any case, thank you for your dedication to providing an amazing utility. My daughter thanks you for saving her schoolwork and years of photos. And for anyone new listening, I wrote quite a while ago, SpinRut, uh, which is saving hard drives, recovering the data on hard drives to this day, and you can get it at uh, grc.com, my website. And I think it's probably safe to say there'll never be a Mac version of it. That's uh, running on my Mac right now, Leo. Is it? I'm secretly working on it. Oh, hey, that's, why that's good news that, for us Macintosh users. Yep. You can take a Mac drive out, if you can, and put it on a PC and have it run, because it doesn't care about file systems, right? I mean, it can run. It can run against the uh, HFS. It's not the file system that's the problem. Yeah, the problem it's the with lack the Mac of BIOS. Is, well, the, actually, no, because no. the the um, the boot camp provides ah. a, a compatible BIOS. The problem was that Spinrite was using the physical hardware of the keyboard in the PC. I didn't and, know that. Were you storing uh, Were you storing data there? What were you doing? Well, there's there's two there's no, two bytes there. There, yeah. there are two I.O. words, 60 and 61. And I'm actually, when Spinrite is multitasking, which is like you're able to jump around between screens and it's doing all these things at once, there's actually a multitasking OS, essentially, that I wrote for it. I can't use the BIOS because the BIOS is not reentrant. And so if I'm, I'm using the BIOS to read and write the disk, I can't also be checking the keyboard to see if the user wants to right. switch around. So I had to go directly to the keyboard hardware. Ah, you read the Problem chip. Problem is, the Mac, yes, on, I'm actually physically reading the bits out of the physical hardware, which I can do no matter what the BIOS is up right, to. Right, So what I, all I had to do was I just re-engineered the, the technology. The Mac uses a USB-based keyboard. So although it simulates the keyboard through the BIOS, it doesn't simulate the hardware because right. that would be like overkill. Uh, anyway, so I did that, and I've got it running on my MacBook Air. It awesome. Just, uh, it, very nicely. So very anyway, nice. it's, it's what I've been working on. Uh, I, I didn't want to make a big announcement because I didn't want to kill sales. It really shouldn't because everyone all the way back nine years for, to SpinRite 6 is going to get a brand new SpinRite for free. I'm not going to charge you anything for it. That so, is nice. Even if you're and, on a Mac? Uh, even if you're on a Mac. Wow. We have had, had listeners who bought SpinRite to support the show but have not been able to use it because they have a Mac. Right. So how can I ask them for more money? You can't. I'm not going. I'm not Couldn't going. possibly. No. <laughs> Very kind of you. That's great. Okay. Moving on. So, so my, I have two favorite tweets that relate to today's podcast topic um the first one it was i actually picked it up somewhere else uh from it's at steven spelled p-h-e-n steven at home and he tweeted something that i thought was quite clever if you're doing nothing wrong you have nothing to hide from the giant surveillance apparatus the government's been hiding that's stephen colbert you know oh it is yeah oh i didn't know <laughs> As soon as I heard the tweet, John came running in and said, oh, yeah, that's Colbert. Oh, cool. How funny. Well, yeah. great. Anyway, I loved that, the, the little double uh, whammy there. <laughs> Nothing to fear. And, and then days ago, Robert Yount uh, tweeted from Palm Harbor, Florida, noting he said, the NSA just needs better PR. 
the free prism cloud-based backup, backup system. Yeah, yeah. Would sound so much better. <laughs> okay, yeah, so yeah. okay, so where are we? We're we, we've had these revelations in the last couple days. Uh, I guess starting last Friday, a couple days before the last podcast, where, uh, of course, the, the the Guardian broke the news of of now we know Edward Snowden, who uh, uh, did not graduate from high school, got his GED, went into the military briefly, b- broke both of his legs during training, so decided that the military wasn't for him, um, and then got a job as a guard. Uh, in an NSA facility, but apparently from watching the video, the guy seems to have his himself, you know, together. Uh, he's sharp. Uh, apparently he's got computer skills. And so he moved up in, you know, through the ranks pretty quickly. Um, and and one of the major issues of controversy, which we're now is, is being discussed in the press, is how somebody who is seemingly not highly qualified, you know, not the kind of person you would want to entrust all of your state secrets to, had access to all of this, which partly, part of which he's disclosed, part of which uh, Glenn Greenwald of The Guardian, who was the reporter that interviewed him and broke the, the, the story, says they've been selectively releasing and there's more to come. Now, how did he have all that? One guy said, well, you know, he was stationed recently in Hawaii and in IT there. And the IT folks have to have access to more technology. And when you're sort of off in the boonies, you know, the boondocks, then we're not watching you so closely. So that's, you know, uh, one theory of that. Anyway, who knows? Um, During the video. We should also say it's possible he's completely lying. Yes, absolutely. All we know is what he's saying. Right. Um, and, uh, okay, so uh, a, a bunch of people have asked me what I feel about this, you know, and there's been a lot of question about, you know, what what label do we put on him? Do we call him a traitor? Do we call him a criminal? Do we? Some people are calling him a hero. Um, and, uh, you know, this is not a policy and politics podcast, so... You know, it really doesn't matter. Um, What I know is that I am frankly glad that this has happened because more than anything else, what we're going to see is that that we're relying on congressional oversight, yet the, the people who are running the program are lying to Congress. That can't happen. I mean, that's the problem. So, so this has come to light. I mean, th- this has brought this behavior to light. And we're a democracy. I, I, I understand the need that the NSA and the CIA and the FBI have for collecting data. Um, and I know, Leah, I watched your coverage of this on Twit on Sunday. And there, you guys were joking about, you know, Googling uh, IED. And it's like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to Google that. I mean, and, and it is sad that I'm, I'm finding myself being self-conscious when I search things that I realize are, you know, keywords. I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if this is, you know, tripped some alarm somewhere. 
and or when I'm, you know, sending email and I realize, oh, I, you know, I mean, there's a creepy feeling now yeah. that that we have. It's called that, a chilling effect, and that's the yeah. often the case when stuff like this happens. Yeah, and 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 of course, so you know, we often talk about tension on this show because we talk about security and and privacy and 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 ease of use, and I've often talked about how there's an inherent tension that exists between. The fact that you would like things to be easy to use, you'd also like to have lots of security. Thus, for example, the famous problem of choosing a good password or password system or whatever. I mean, the fact is you'd like to have one password that's easy to remember. We know that that's that's so there's, you know, that that's really bad for security, really good for ease of use. So you have to compromise. And there's there's similarly in an in a in a in a society and in a government like ours, attention is going to exist where where we have inherently you know asymmetric terrorism and crime where law enforcement has an a, a, i mean a clear need to be able to, to to collect intelligence and and the intelligence is going to come you know from our environment from where we are well now we're, of course we're in the world of the internet where where as it's often observed everyone virtually is leaving footprints behind them and that information there's a there's a you you can imagine on the NSA side the overwhelming desire i mean just just salivating to have access to everything they they're convinced they will act responsibly the, and, but and their and their argument is we need it. I'm sure in in the intelligence uh, meetings behind closed doors, they're explaining to the people on the committees that you know we have to have this data. We we have to have it, and you know we're gonna do the right thing with it. Trust us. And 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 for me, the the the, the saddest thing was this testimony on March 12th, where where. Uh, I think it was Senator Wyden um, of Oregon who is on the Intelligence Committee and has been concerned about these issues for quite a while, informed ahead of time the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, that he was going to ask him whether the NSA was collecting data on millions of Americans. It gave him fair warning, and James Clapper said no. And then afterwards, he... Uh, the Wyden's office contacted uh, the NSA and gave Clapper the opportunity to revise his testimony, and they declined to do that. This was three months ago today. You kind of expect spooks to lie, at well, least in public. That, I'm hoping they're telling more, being more forthcoming in the closed sessions of the House Intelligence Committee and places like that. We don't know. It's 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 been noted though that that it is extreme. It is absolutely possible to. To obfuscate and to to say, I'm afraid I cannot answer that on the grounds that it would yeah, be divulging. That would be preferable, wouldn't it? Yeah. But that would be an admission. I mean, if he said that, that would be an admission. Well, it? okay. Um, so the, I think spooks lie. I don't think uh, well, that's a surprise. I'm not a constitutional attorney, obviously. Oh, it's, but, it's illegal. But <laughs> Wyden had to well, – and he was sworn testimony. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's is, perjury like, in front of Congress, you know, yeah. Hand on the Bible and so forth. So yeah. so Wyden would not have asked in an open session right. that question 
if it if he didn't expect to get a truthful answer right. meaning that that i mean and he knows way more about what's going on than i do if that was a question he had to have asked and answered in in behind closed doors then fine but this was not i mean this is on the record in public and and i have a clip of it that we'll play here in a minute just because our listeners need to hear this um and and so because it's it's part of this i what is i think an part an important story but i need to lay a little bit of this groundwork because what i'm going to explain is really going to upset a lot of people and so so what what i will say is while i'm glad that this came out I, in, in Edward Snowden's position, could never do it because he swore an oath. And that's the end of it, as far as I'm concerned. He no longer, the only reason he had access to this information is that he promised he would never, ever divulge it. And so his only recourse, if he found what he was learning to be distasteful, was to resign and remain silent for the rest of his life. Well, I mean, that okay, but it's more course. complicated than that because if you were a Nazi soldier, you could say, "Well, hey, I signed an oath that I'd be loyal." Well, to well and and Hitler, there's so. you know, people have been calling him a whistleblower, but as I understand it, a whistleblower is when you are describing something which is illegal. And so, one of the interesting points Mika Brzezinski kept making it on Morning Joe uh, earlier this week was that she said, "Well, this is legal, right? This is legal, right?" And of course, the 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 point is that if we don't know what's happening, we can't ask the questions and we can't fix the law, which is broken. Some people are arguing that it's time to revisit this now, that maybe this has gone a little further than we intended. And if we don't have the truth being told to our lawmakers by the people who are doing the watching, that is, if, there, if there's no one watching the watchers, which is what happens if you prevaricate like this, then... Then, then you know we don't have a feed. We don't have feedback in the system, right? So, uh, let's play uh, uh, George Stephanopoulos's brief, uh, the, the beginning of of his interview, because uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, George asks a bunch of quick questions that are great, and and Glenn answers them very nicely. I think. Hello again. The secret struggle to balance national security and individual liberty broke out into the open this week after a series of blockbuster revelations starting in the Guardian newspaper. We learned that the government has the capacity to track virtually every American phone call and to scoop up impossibly vast quantities of data across the Internet. And our first guest is the Guardian columnist getting these scoops, Glenn Greenwald. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Greenwald. You are really on a roll. You broke another story yesterday showing the scale of the data collection programs. In March 2013, you report the government collected 97 billion pieces of data, almost all of it from outside the U.S. What's the key finding here? There are two key findings. One is that there are members of the Congress who have responsibility for oversight, for checking the people who run this vast secret apparatus of spying to make sure they're not abusing their power. These people in Congress have continuously asked for the NSA to provide basic information about how many Americans they're spying on, how many conversations and telephone and chats of, of Americans they're intercepting. And the NSA continuously tells them, we don't have the capability to tell you that, to even give you rough estimates. And with these documents that we published show that were marked top secret to prevent the American people from learning about them, was that the NSA keeps extremely precise statistics, all the data that the senators have asked for that the NSA has falsely claimed 
doesn't exist. And the other thing that it does, as you said, is it indicates just how vast and massive the NSA is in terms of sweeping up all forms of communication around the globe, including domestically. You also drew new criticism yesterday from the director of national intelligence, James Clapper. He called the disclosures reckless, said the rush to publish has created significant misimpressions, and added that the articles are, are filled with inaccuracies. Your response to that? Every single time any major media outlet reports on something that the government is hiding, that political officials don't want people to know, such as the fact that they're collecting the phone records of all Americans, regardless of any suspicion of wrongdoing, they pub the people in power do exactly the same thing. They attack the media as the messenger, and they try and discredit the story. This has been going back decades, um, ever since the Pentagon Papers were released by the New York Times, and political officials said, you're endangering national security. The only thing we've endangered is the reputation of the people in power who are building this massive spying apparatus without any accountability, who are trying to hide from the American people what it is that they're doing. There's no national security harm from letting people know that they're collecting all phone records, that they're tapping into the Internet, that they're planning massive cyber attacks, both foreign and, and even domestic. These are things that the American people have a right to know. The only thing being damaged um, is the credibility of, of political officials and the way that they exercise power in the dark. But one of the things you reported is that the government has, quote, direct access to the servers of massive internet firms like Google and Microsoft and Facebook and all the companies have come out uh, and denied it. You see Google saying the U.S. government does not have direct access or a backdoor to the information stored in our data centers. Similar statements from Facebook and Apple and Mr. Clapper also said the U.S. government does not unilaterally obtain information. Uh, now I take it there could be some semantic um, word games being played here. What's your understanding about what is actually happening? Because it does appear that they don't have direct access to the servers. Well, our story was very clear. What we said was that, and, and we presented it as a story from the start, was that we have top secret NSA documents that claim that there is a new program called the Prison Program in place since 2007 that provides, in the words of the NSA's own documents, collect direct co collection directly from the servers of these companies. We then went to all of those companies names and they said, no, we don't provide direct access to our servers. So there was a conflict, which is what we reported, that the NSA claims that they have direct access, the companies deny it. Clearly, there are all kinds of negotiations taking place and all kinds of agreements that have been reached between these Internet companies that store massive amounts of communication data about people around the world and the government. Um, we should have this debate out in the open. Let these companies that collect massive amounts of information about people and the government resolve this discrepancy in public. Tell us what it is exactly that these companies are turning over to the government and what kinds of capabilities the government is wanting to access. So we reported these discrepancies precisely because we want them, those parties, to resolve it in, in public, in, in sunlight, and, and let people decide whether or not that's the kind of country yeah. they want to live in when, when the government can, can get this massive amount of information. The DNI spokesman also said that a crimes report has been filed by the National Security Agency. Have you been contacted by the FBI or any federal law enforcement official yet? No, and, and any time they would like to speak to me, I'll be more than happy to speak to them, and I will tell them that there's this thing called the Constitution, in the very First Amendment of which guarantees a free press. As an American citizen, I have every right, and even the obligation as a journalist, to tell my fellow citizens and, and our readers what it is that the government is doing that they don't want people in the United States to know about, and I'm happy to talk to them at any time and the attempt to intimidate journalists and sources with these constant threats of investigation aren't going to work. You've described your source as a reader of yours who trusted how you would handle the material. The source has also been described as a career government official um, who is concerned 
about these programs. A former prosecutor called the source a double H. Is This is before uh, the Snowden revelation came out, I take it. Yes, yes. Yeah. So they're talking about Snowden at that point. Yes. Okay. I know you're not going to reveal the source, obviously, but what more can you tell us about the individual? <laughs> not so obviously. He did. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm not going to confirm that there's only one individual. There could be one or more than one. But let me just make this point because I think this is so critical because every time there's a whistleblower, somebody who exposes government wrongdoing, the the tactic of the government is to try and demonize them as a traitor. They risk their careers and their lives and their liberty because what they were seeing being done in secret inside the United States government is so alarming and so pernicious that they simply want one thing, and that is for the American people at least to learn about what this massive spying apparatus is and what the capabilities are so that we can have an open, honest debate yes. about whether that's the kind of country that we want to live in. And if people decide that they, yes, they do want the government knowing everything about them, intervening in all of their communications, monitoring them, keeping dossiers on them, then so be it. But at least we should have that debate openly and democratically. Unfortunately, since the government hides virtually everything that they do with the threat of criminal prosecution, the only way for us to learn about them is through these courageous whistleblowers who deserve our praise and gratitude and not imprisonment and prosecution. Finally, should we be expecting more revelations from you? You should. Okay, Glenn Greenwald, thanks very much. I'm not thrilled with the way that he's uh, and The Guardian are parsing this out. It feels to me like that's um, a little bit of a, a play for uh, more more views. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, I understand their commercial interest in getting as much bang for the buck as they can. Um, you know, they have a, a reputation that they had established, which is what caused Edward to choose them. He knew yeah, that Glenn yeah. would, w was sympathetic to, you know, his position and... And civil liberties, and and so that and so forth. And so, Greenwald is, uh, I think, well regarded. He's smart. He's an attorney. Um, he is a privacy and a security uh, expert, and I think probably the right person. Uh, and the Guardian right. and, is a good as a good uh, journal. Washington Post, yeah. we should say, simultaneously broke this story. So I, that's it, what I was trying to say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's likely yeah. that Snowden uh, or whoever, uh, if there were other informants, also uh, gave this to uh, the Washington. Well, Post. and. And and it occurred to me that one of the reasons that he gave them to both outlets is because there there was a prior instance where this kind of information was sat on right. for a year, and so you know, and so th that didn't that wouldn't uh, allow Edward to get the goal of getting this stuff disclosed. You know, he he says in his in the complete video that uh, which I would commend people to watch. It's it's very interesting that. Um, uh, that he, he doesn't not want the story to be about him to whatever degree possible. To some degree, it is. He wants it to be about what's going on. Um, okay, so with that little bit of of uh, sort of backgrounding, uh, let's uh, look at the James Clapper video. It's it's only forty eight seconds. This is taken from the the video record of congressional testimony uh, that was open, obviously to to, to cameras. Uh, exactly three months ago on March 12th, where with prior notice of the question, the director of national intelligence was asked uh, what the NSA is doing. Well, is the desire for more public information. Now, he believes that the administration has not been misleading generally, uh, the, the committee and the public. But I want to play an exchange that was in the Intelligence Committee in March when James Clapper was questioned by your colleague, Senator Wyden. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. 
It does not. Not wittingly. There are cases where they could in inadvertently perhaps uh, collect, but not, not wittingly. All right. So, um, you know, there it is. That's that's the that's our... not even a non-denial denial. That's a denial. denial. <laughs> there's no that's, way. There's no way. There's no way to walk yourself out of that one. Yeah. And I mean, and then Andrea Mitchell interviewed him for uh, Meet the Press on Sunday, and and I'm I'm looking for where it was. He uh, he's he actually said to her, "I thought though I thought though in retrospect." I was asked a when are you going to stop beating your wife right. kind of question, which is not answerable necessarily by a simple yes or no. So this is, he, he said to Andrea, so I responded in what I thought was the most truthful or least untruthful manner by saying no. Okay. Oh, I know. It's just painful. Okay. I know. Um, there, there's a great. If anyone's curious, there's a, a great take on this. Fred Kaplan wrote an article in Slate.com, uh, uh, and it's uh, it says fire DNI James Clapper. He lied to Congress about NSA surveillance, and you know I don't know whether the guy has to go, but he certainly did lie because we now know uh, much more than we did three months ago when you know when this was said to. Uh, you know, when he was asked this uh, openly. Um, and and the EFF, of course, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is all over this happily, um, or I'm happy to say. I really thought that their summation of this was perfect. Um, they said, uh, quoting from a longer article, they said, all of this would be amusing if the administration's main argument to defend the NSA's massive spying program, and spying is their word, not mine. Uh, certainly it is surveillance. Spying you know, requires a, you know, a, a judgment. Uh, all of this would be amusing if the, if the administration's main argument to defend the NSA's massive spying program is that Congress has been informed of all their activities. Democracy can't function when Congress is quote, informed, unquote, by the least untruthful statements of the administration. Using unusual definitions are the, uh, th that are designed to give an impression that is the polar opposite of the truth. I, I skipped part of this that, it, that explains, and, and when Andrea, when he responded this way, Andrea said, well, but, you know, uh, how, how can you answer no that you're you're not collecting information, and then he's uh, he said um, uh, he said Clapper's deceptions don't. I'm 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 quoting from the Slate article, rambling on in his rationalization to Andrea Mitchell. He focused on Wyden's use of the word "collect," as in, did the NSA collect any type of data on millions of Americans? Clapper told Mitchell that he envisioned a vast library of books containing vast amounts oh, of data please. on every American. To me, he said, collection of U.S. persons' data would mean taking the book off the shelf and opening <laughs> no. it up and reading it. But this but, is interesting because all of these things he's saying really are an acknowledgement that no was a lie. 
Yes. You, I mean, the, it's only yes. not a lie if you have these bizarre interpretations of what the question meant. Well, yeah. I mean, what can he say now right. with this recording Whoops. of him three months ago yeah. flatly denying what we now know has been true for years? Right. Okay. So, first, on what was authorized under the FISA Article 215, um, that's the, the telephony metadata collection. What I found interesting about it was essentially... What, what's going on is that our, the, all the telephone companies naturally keep the records that they need for billing. So, you know, they're recording uh, so-called metadata. We've talked about metadata. Metadata is, is essentially sort of the, not the main content, it's the embellishment. For example, when we talk about a browser query, you know, there's the query and then there's the headers and, you know, the headers are metadata. They're additional information, date and time stamp and cookies and so forth are, are browser metadata or in a file system. You know, you, you're storing files, but it's also keeping track of when you last accessed the file and when it was, you know, modified and, and when it was created and, 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 and file privileges, for example, who's able to access it. That's metadata. So similarly, telephony metadata is is like where you are by like which cell tower your call is coming in on, your originating phone number, or actually it's the serial number of your phone, um, the, the number you dialed, uh, probably where it is, maybe, although if it went off out into a different phone system, they may not have that. But basically, it's your call records. It's not your conversation. It's, your, it's the, the event features of, of the call. Well, what's interesting is that phone companies have no need to retain that in perpetuity. They typically only keep it for 60 to 90 days. So what's happened is under, as authorized under this Article 215, the NSA has set up arrangements with all of the domestic phone companies to acquire this data before they delete it. So, and it turns out, that it's not against the law to do this. The so-called business records have been ruled by the Supreme Court not to be subject to privacy protection. So, you know, if, if it's AT&T or, or Verizon's business records, this is just their records for their own purposes. This is like and, the billing the billing information that they would yes, have. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's about to be deleted. And the NSA says, oh, 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 oh hold on a second. Let us make a copy of that. Right. Or just send it to us before you hit delete. So in listening to all of the buzz about this, there's this downplaying of, oh, but it's not your conversations. It's just, it's just the metadata. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, my God. I mean, do you realize what it means? If there is a, a facility huge enough to capture and, and contain all of that and the computing resources necessary to link it together. What this builds is an incredible graph of, of all of the connectivity that exists between everybody with a phone in the United States. And it's funny because in my notes, I was, I was already making a note that well, the history is also in really important and crucially important to the NSA because, for example, if they, if they got a, a, a identified a, a 
person who is a suspect of something, a terrorist presumably, or, or a bad guy of some uh, qualifying for further surveillance, they can query this network and what they – what these the, the the continual collection of the data means is that they can go back in time. They have a time machine that allows them to walk back and look at the history of of all past connections over time. That's unbelievably rich. And it, it happened that Edward, during his interview, said exactly that. So I thought it's a very short piece. We just uh, hear it in his own words. Don't care about surveillance because even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched and recorded, and the the storage capability of these systems increases every year consistently by orders of magnitude uh, to where it's getting to the point you don't have to have done anything wrong. You simply have to eventually fall under suspicion from somebody, even by a wrong call. And then they can use the system to go back in time and scrutinize every decision you've ever made, every friend you've ever discussed something with, and attack you on that basis to sort of derive suspicion from an innocent life and paint anyone in the context of a wrongdoer. So, so and by the way, I want to point out that if anybody would say, well, the government would never do that, just there are, there's some pretty good examples with the Nixon's enemy list and J. Edgar Hoover's yes. uh, persecution of Martin Luther King, that it yes. is not unusual for our government, our uh, republic, to do this kind of thing. And, and it doesn't, I mean, these are people who at the time righteously believed that they were doing the right thing. Yeah. I mean, they were doing it in secret and, and, that's a problem. And I mean, secrecy is what we have to worry about because exactly as you say, Leo, there has been there is ample history of abuses of this kind of of data collection. Um, and so what I, I just wanted to shine a little light on this notion that, oh, well, you know, tele- telephony metadata is is not useful. Remember, we talked about some time ago this new facility that the NSA is building. We were scratching our heads at the time, w- wondering what is a zeta byte because this place can store five of them, right. five zeta bytes, million square feet, feet, million and a half yes. square feet. Yeah. One one point. Uh, uh, it's a it's a million and a half square feet, costing one point two billion dollars. 26 miles south of Salt Lake City in a town called Bluffdale, Utah. It's, it uses 65 megawatts of power. It's got its own power substation and, you know, like cooling ponds. And I mean, it's just phenomenal. And at the time, we were thinking, well, what are they going to put in that? What are they going to fill that with? Well, you know, we have an answer to that question now. Um, Let's take are- a break as we uh, as we because uh, we have a very appropriate advertiser right now, if you, if you don't mind. And then we can get on because I, I presume Perfect. the next step would be uh, you're kind of uh, putting the pieces together. Yes, and, I did and- want to mention that also they are collecting they are known also to be collecting credit card data in the same fashion. The business records of credit card processors right. are similarly being uh, scooped up. Right. So this is this is happening all over the place. Uh, let's take a break and talk a little bit about Pro XPN. Couldn't really be a better better time to do that than uh, right now. It is a VPN solution that protects uh, your privacy online hmm. by encrypting uh, your traffic. Now, there's a number of reasons one might want uh, to do that. Uh, you know, uh, 
I, I, I leave it to you to figure out exactly what you might want to use ProXPN for. We've talked about the idea of a VPN or virtual private network uh, as making it more secure to surf from an open access uh, spot, you know, a, a hotel or a cafe. 512-bit encryption tunnel means that nobody can see what your traffic is all the way over to the ProXPN servers. A 2048-bit encryption key. Uh, open VPN is the backbone. All of this is good news. It also protects you against uh, monitoring by, well, I don't know, your ISP. Uh, protect yourself against the six strikes rule or false accusations of copyright violation. Bypass internet filtering and blocked websites. Geographic restrictions. ProXPN software for Windows and Mac offers advanced controls, allowing you to select the program and ports you want to anonymously route through ProXPN's servers. It also works with iOS or Android, and you don't even need to have VPN support there. They'll use the PPTP capability of your mobile device. Not not normally desirable, but better than nothing if you don't have access to VPN. Then A lot of the new phones are, are putting VPN in. We've got a special deal for you. Now, there is a free basic account with a full feature set, but if you want more servers, more speed, more connectivity options, you can get a premium account. Normally $9.95 a month, $74.95 for an entire year. But with our special offer, SN20, you'll get 20% off for the lifetime of your account. Not just for a month or a year, but forever. That's less. It means that you'll be paying less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan. That's a good deal. And of course, if you're not satisfied, you can cancel within seven days for a full refund. So check it out, ProXPN, P-R-O-X-P-N dot com slash twit. Remember this offer code SN20. You can try it for free if you want, but if you want the premium, use that offer code to save 20% off for the life of your account. Now more than ever, you need ProXPN. Uh, we continue on. Steve Gibson, we're talking about, of course, PRISM and... Uh, the revelations which continue uh, from The Guardian and The Washington Post and others about um, some sort of federal spying. Then, you know, we, we, we've heard the word echelon for more than a decade. We knew that after 9-11, uh, President Bush authorized warrantless wiretaps. Uh, I remember, don't you remember uh, the uh, whistleblower that in 2000, mm -hmm. I think, six or seven, told us that the NSA had a secret room at AT&T headquarters in San Francisco? So that they could collect this kind of data. So this is this is not we're not talking about anything new here. No, and I think that well there is there is something new, and that's Prism. And I'm going to explain what's been done differently than, as far as we know, anything we had before. Excellent. Um, because we this may be this podcast may be viewed by people who are not regular listeners if if people want to send this link to others and so forth i want to give a little bit more background to the way the internet works than our regular listeners would need uh we've 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 had a series of podcasts in the past famously on how the internet works um and of course i'll i'll, I'll keep it brief and and aim it at this at the point that i'm i'm bringing so what we have with the internet, you know, the word internet is interconnected networks. We ha it, the internet itself is a a global interconnection of privately owned networks, and 
Uh, and in some cases, they may be government-owned networks. Or in, in the U.S., generally, we, we have, you know, AT&T and, and uh, Verizon and Level 3 and, you know, large carriers who then supply connectivity to Cox Cable and Cablevision and, and, you know, smaller carriers and ultimately down connected to our own little network in our homes. Um, and this is all glued together with routers. Um, we've got consumer routers, uh, you know, made of plastic in our homes, but there are, as they're called, big iron routers, which route vast quantities of data across the internet. And we'll just, I'll just take Google as an example because it's so well known. Um, all over the world, people are sending data to Google. They're putting Google in their browser. They're asking Google to find them things. They're, they're, they're doing searches. Maybe they're using Gmail and, and establishing a secure connection <clears throat> to a Google server that exists in a Google data center somewhere on the planet. So the way that happens is that, that with, with all the people scattered around, they put packets of data onto their own network, the network that they're on, and the router on that network, by definition, is connected to at least two places. Consumer routers are connected to their home network and to their ISP's network. So there's only two connections. But the router's job is to forward that data to, towards its destination. So when someone at home puts a, pack, a packet of data bound for Google, it goes to their router and the router sends it to the ISP. The ISP's network looks at the packets addressing and says, oh, okay, it goes to an ISP router. And in the route, now, a big ISP router will have, will have an octopus of connections. It'll be connected to many other routers, not just one other network, many other networks. And so it uses its routing tables to send the packet towards Google. And this is where the robustness and the strength of the Internet comes from is it's, it's inherently redundant. There are many routes to get to Google from any given place, but there's typically a best one. And so the router will try to use that. If that link happened to be down at the moment, the router would go, oh, and use a, a next best route, maybe off to in, other, in another direction that would then loop back around and eventually get there. So, so that's how this works. It's it's an interconnected set of networks that are that are connected to each other that is the the interconnection points you think of it sort of like a spider web where the points that the web comes together there's a router there and the router isn't very smart it knows just enough to to route that data in the proper direction now there's an interesting phenomenon that occurs which is as you get closer to Google, more of the traffic which is being carried by routers will be Google's as a percentage, if you think about it. Because the Yahoo traffic, that went off in a different direction. And the Microsoft traffic was headed to Redmond. And the Apple traffic was, you know, to, to Apple's farm, their, their data center in, in Cupertino or where, wherever. So the idea is that with each of these hops, as they're called, across the Internet, the, the 
packet is getting closer to its destination. And the if you think about it, the percentage of traffic that that router is carrying or forwarding will tend to be concentrated toward, for example, its destination, Google. There will be no Yahoo traffic if Yahoo's routers and if their data center is off in a different direction. That will have been sent out other links. So there's a there's a a concentrating phenomenon. And the other thing that's interesting is then to ask yourself about the question of ownership. Who owns this data? And and again, I don't know from a legal standpoint, I'm coming from a technology standpoint, but this is still the public internet. It was the public internet when it was on your ISP. I mean, it was their network. But the way this all works globally is everybody with with connected networks has agreed to, to tra- provide transit for, to carry everybody else's traffic. So they, they just said, okay, I'll carry yours if you'll carry mine. And that's the way the internet works. But, but you know, the, the packet that a user generated is just this little blob of bits that has an address, a source at a destination IP, the internet protocol address that is used to send it towards its destination. And so the, the wires that the packets are moving over belong to the public or private carriers of the data, but the data is, is sort of, it, it's public. I mean, it's, 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 you, you've lost control of it. You've put it on the internet and it's gone. So, and we'll, we'll come back to this because it's an interesting question about, about, about what this means that what I think it's very clear the NSA has done. Now, uh, as Leo mentioned a minute ago, uh, back in 07, there was a lawsuit, uh, and I have not had any chance to do any re- deep research on the lawsuit because it really wasn't relevant to this. But what what it was about, I think, some privacy complaint that, that someone had. Um, testimony was, was given in deposition um, of a technician who worked in a facility at 611 Folsom in San Francisco. And Leo, if there I have a I provided a link to a PDF to you. If you put up the the image there, that's useful. I'm just going to read uh what the EFF's page has. They summarized this and it is it's another piece of this puzzle. This was by a- the way another whistleblower. Yes. Uh, so you know, it, unfortunately this is what often has to happen is uh Somebody has to step forward and say, I have knowledge of this. This was an employee, I think, of the of AT&T. Yes, and in this. fact, um, I a, a few seconds ago while you were uh, uh, telling people about ProXPN, I tweeted five bitly links to a set of documents, including the redacted testimony for national security reasons uh, that, that, that this comes from. So the full testimony is available with photos of the door of the room I'm going to be talking about in a second. <laughs> Amazing. AT&T's internet traffic, this I'm reading now from the EFF's summary of this, uh, and this is titled AT&T's role in dragnet surveillance of millions of its customers. AT&T's internet traffic in San Francisco runs through fiber optic cables 
at an AT&T facility located at 611 Folsom Street in San Francisco using a device called a splitter, a complete copy of the Internet traffic that AT&T receives, email, web browsing requests, and other electronic communications sent to or from the customers of AT&T's WorldNet Internet service from people who use another Internet service provider is diverted onto a separate fiber optic cable which is connected to a room known as the SG-3 room which is controlled by the NSA. The by the way, copy- this is not cellular uh, data. This is not phone calls. This is the, the, ATT as an ISP. They, yes. This, and, uh, this, it's important yeah. because the ISP is the – you mentioned collection point. The ISP is a collection point for everybody. Everything yes. you do goes through that ISP. Yes, and the way the way the internet is uh, is organized in a hierarchy is we have so-called tier one providers like Level Three, like Deutsche Telekom, like um, AT and T. You know the really big carriers like Sprint. These are and there's like I think there's a small number, uh, twenty maybe it's twelve or twenty five. I can't remember the number exactly, but there's a relatively few and. And they're sort of the – they're the networks that straddle the globe or, for example, maybe an entire country. And then they resell connections to their network. They resell bandwidth to Tier 2 providers, then to Tier 3 providers in, in a hierarchy. So, so what this is, this is, a, this is a fiber optic tap using a splitter in the Folsom building in – San Francisco that that makes a copy of that essentially receives a copy of all the data passing on the along this major trunk of AT&T and it goes into this SG3 room which as EFF writes is controlled by the NSA the other copy of the traffic continues onto the internet to its destination Continuing to read from the EEFF document, the SG3 room was created under the supervision of the NSA and contains powerful computer equipment connecting to separate networks. This equipment is designed to analyze communications at high speed and can be programmed to review and select out the contents and traffic patterns of communications according to user-defined rules. Only personnel with NSA clearances, people assisting or acting on behalf of the NSA, have access to this room. AT&T's deployment of NSA-controlled surveillance capability apparently involves considerably more locations than would be required to catch only international traffic. The evidence of the San Francisco room is consistent with an overall national AT&T deployment to from 15 to 20 similar sites, possibly more. This implies that a substantial fraction, probably well over half, of AT&T's purely domestic traffic was diverted to the NSA. At the same time, the equipment in this room is well-suited to capture and, and they have analysis, they meant analyze or capture 
pseudo, I'm sorry, to the capture and analysis of large volumes of data for purposes of surveillance. Now, this came from um, sworn testimony by Mark Klein, which he gave under oath on the 26th of May, 2006. So a, a few years back. Um, and I'm not, this is lengthy. I'm not going to go over it, but there are a few points I want. I, I'll just give you a sense for it. He says, I, Mark Klein, declare under perj- penalty of perjury that the following is true and correct. I am submitting this declaration in support of plaintiff's motion for a preliminary injunction. I have personal knowledge of the facts stated herein, unless stated on in, on uh, unless stated on information and belief. And if called upon to testify to those facts, I could and would competently do so. For over 22 years, I worked as a technician for AT and T Corporation, first in New York and then in California. I started working for AT and T in November 1981 as a communications technician. Okay, and blah blah blah. So. He, he's, um, uh, he's been put uh, in uh, – he, he became involved in the installation of this room that we were just reading about. It says uh, AT&T Corp., now a subsidiary of AT&T Inc., maintains domestic telecommunications facilities over which millions of Americans' telephone and Internet communications pass every day. These facilities allow for the transmission of interstate or foreign electronic voice and data communications with the aid of of wire, fiber optic cable, or other like connections between the point of origin and the point of of reception. Um, He says, between 1998 and 2003, I worked in an AT&T office located on, and then it's been redacted, in, redacted, as one of XX computer network associates in the office. The site manager was a management level technician with the title of, that's redacted, here and after referred to as FSS1, two other FSS people, blah, blah, blah. It says, during my service at the redacted facility, the office provided world net internet service, international and domestic voice over IP, so forth and so forth. Um, so I'm going to skip down. And he says, um, in January 2003, I, along with others, toured the AT&T Central Office on Folsom Street in San Francisco, actually three floors of an SBC building. There I saw a new room being built adjacent to the 4ESS switch room where the public's phone calls are routed. I learned that the person whom the NSA interviewed for the secret job was the person working to install equipment in this room. The regular technician workforce was not allowed in the room. In San Francisco, the, quote, secret room, unquote, is room 641A at 611 Folsom Street, the site of a large SBC phone building, three floors of which are occupied by AT&T. High-speed fiber optic circuits come in on the eighth floor and run down to the seventh floor, where they connect to routers for AT&T's world net service, part of the latter's vital common backbone. In order to snoop on these circuits... A special cabinet was installed and cabled to the secret room on the sixth floor to monitor the information going through the circuits. The location code of the cabinet is, and he gives a number, which denotes the seventh floor, aisle 177 and bay 04. The secret room itself is roughly 24 by 48 feet, containing perhaps a dozen cabinets, including much such equipment as sun servers and two Juniper routers, plus an industrial-sized air conditioner. 
plans for the secret room were fully drawn up by December 2002, curiously only four months after DARPA started awarding contracts for TIA, whatever that is. And then we have two photos in this, in this deposition, photos showing the, 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 the room. And then he says, while doing my job, I learned that fiber optic cables from the secret room were tapping into the world net circuits by splitting off a portion of the light signal. And that's why the program is called PRISM, Leo. What does a PRISM do? Uh, It splits a light signal. It splits light. I saw this in a design document available to me entitled Study Group 3 LGX slash Splitter Wiring, San Francisco, dated December 10th, 2002. I also saw design documents dated January 13th, 2004, and blah, 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 which instructed technicians on connecting some of the already in-service circuits to the splitter cabinet, which diverts some of the light signal to the secret room. The circuits listed were the peering links which connect WorldNet with other networks and hence the entire country, as well as the rest of the world. So here is what NSA has done. This is installed in San Francisco. The NSA has installed this technology, this prism fiber optic tapping splitting technology just upstream of all of those companies named. It is absolutely true that they probably never knew about it. They may be finding out about it for the first time listening to this podcast, and I imagine it will suddenly all make sense to them. The NSA has said they had direct access to these companies' servers. Well, they're, and that's the funny thing, the thing I noticed when I realized what was going on is that server is the only word anyone knows. My mom knows the word server. You know, uh, Mika Brzezinski on Morning Joe knows about the, the AOL server or the Google servers. That's in the common parlance. The word that we should have been using is router. And that's not a word that people understand. But that's the that's the key to this technology. As I was saying, routers concentrate data. Somewhere, and the NSA knows exactly where it is, Google is buying their bandwidth. And there are routers upstream of Google whose purpose it is to take the, the disparate packets all coming into Google and route them down fiber optic lines, which finally make the transit into Google's data center. It is unnecessary to have access to the data center if you are tapping the fiber optic line going into and out of the data center. Okay, but isn't this encrypted traffic? Ah, well, yes and no. So some of it is encrypted, but... For example, how is this useful? We all know that email has never been an encrypted technology. Email SMTP does not involve encryption when when we send email from place to place unless an individual deliberately encrypts their email. And even if you were using Google, you may have an, a secured SSL connection to Google's web server when you're using Gmail. But the moment 
that email leaves to go to your mom on AOL or it, it goes uh, anywhere else outside of Google, it is being sent over SMTP connections, which are not it is SMTP protocol, which is not encrypted. So even our, 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 whereas our interchange with Google on, on their website is encrypted, email transiting the Internet isn't. So all email outbound from Google is fully readable and all email incoming to Google is fully readable. It's certainly true and, and our, our surveillance state is up is unhappy with the growing use of encryption but a huge a vast you know still the majority arguable are are, are arguably of data is not encrypted and then we there is other sorts of metadata we've talked about this on this podcast for example dns queries um when you go to a website your your, your system has to query a dns server in order to get the ip address well, that's typically not encrypted unless you use the service that OpenVPN offers. So, so what we have is we have this system called Prism. We have this, this bunch of companies that are absolutely sure that they have never agreed to blanket uh, you know, eavesdropping, wiretapping with the NSA. And I believe them. If, if the NSA had reason to to specifically require uh, data that is it is um, specific to a given case we already know they go to a court they get a warrant and under the uh, under a bond of secrecy they're able to to get the data that the company has if any and the company is bound not to say it I don't believe that's what's going on the fact that this is called prism the fact that a prism spritz light the fact that we know, if from this prior testimony that there is a facility in Folsom that is, you know, that the NSA has been doing this. In fact, further on in this testimony, he he quotes the specific routing technology, the gear that's being used. There is a there's a semantic analysis uh, uh, technology. I don't know if I can find it here on the fly, but but I just I just tweeted all the documents that, that contain this information for anybody who's wondering. Anyway, I am convinced from from everything that I've seen that the that oh also the timeline. This is not something you can do instantly. This is going to take time. So what it looks like from the timeline that we saw in one of those slides, where individual. Uh, corporate entities were added to the PRISM project one at a time, that fits the facts too. The idea that the NSA would say, okay, you know, now we want to get everything, all of Apple's traffic we want to tap. Essentially what we have is wiretapping of these companies. Now, remember that I don't know legally where this stands because this is this is the internet. You could argue that if somebody was installing, surreptitiously installing equipment inside Google's facility, well, then it's under Google's control and it's Google's. All the NSA is doing is tapping the communications, which is still the Internet. It's just been filtered down so that it's nothing but Google's traffic. So it's all they all really need to do is find the backbones, the big uh, tier one providers. And you say there are about eight or nine of them or how many are there? Well, you, no, what you need is you, the, the, where you need to place the tap is 
as close to Google as you can get or as right. close to Microsoft or as close to Yahoo because you don't want a lot of other extraneous traffic. You want to get you all of that. All. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, so would yeah. it have to be in Google's facility? No, um, it would be so. So no, Google's going to have fiber f that is going to be fed from their provider. Google is right. buying bandwidth from somebody. Let's say, let's say it's level one. We, we or don't level know. three or level three. I mean, yes. Actually, let's say it's level one. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> somebody called level one. Somebody innocent. <laughs> uh, so you would then go as the NSA to level one issue them an NSL, a national security letter, which means they can't speak. Yep. And say we want to. We're just going to plug this little thing into your router. Can you give us a yep. room? <laughs> yes, we we need. Yes, we need a secret room. Yeah. and we're going to staff it with our own people. Oh, there at one point the air conditioning, uh, the air the air conditioner's uh, condensation tray overflowed and was spilling water in the secret room, and it was dripping down to, to the floor below. So that caused some problem. I guess they hadn't quite figured out how to you know drain the air conditioning condensate. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so give us a secret room. But so, so go ahead, Leo. I, I, uh, yeah, I want you to so, restate it. No, well, I think that uh, you, you've answered my question. So they go to the the tier one provider, the level one or whoever it is, and say, "Give us." Well, a no, they, they they go to the the bandwidth provider of the company they're targeting. So it's not tier one. It might be tier three. I mean, uh -huh. it, it's like. Because it's going to come down the hierarchy until right. it gets to the entity they want to tap. You, you don't need to tell Google about this. No, Google would have no idea. And this and gives them plausible deniability. They may know about it, but they may just this gives them plausible deniability. No, no, they don't have no, access to I our think servers. They'd be furious, Leo. They're being this is a wiretap. Yeah, but surely they've figured this out. Well, I haven't heard Maybe about not. it anywhere in the news. Right. Nobody else seems to have figured out what Prism is, right. and there is this fits every fact that this. It's why it's called Prism. It's it, they're they're using fiber optic cable splitting, right. um, and it's, it fits the whole timeline. They didn't just bang do it all at once right. because it's going to take time. They're going to have to they have to go to the individual carriers who are providing bandwidth to these companies who are and I mean the only thing Apple and Google and Yahoo represent are major social focal points. Right. You know, they're and, and actually it by tapping those major carriers or those 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 major companies, they're they're the NSA is minimizing the work that they have to do because most people are going to use Google or Yahoo or or AOL and and Apple and There's so forth. precedent for this because remember Carnivore, which uh, was renamed after they realized it was a terrible name. This was the FBI's <laughs> uh, attempt to get every internet service provider in the country to put a box in there. Again, another focal point. In fact, the best place to collect all this stuff is at the ISP level, um, and uh, for individuals, you can get it in every respect. And there's never really been any proof that this didn't happen. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the recent uh, law, which was not passed, but might well still be requiring ISPs to collect 18 months of uh, data for, for well, use. So, so, you know, again, this I'm, all makes perfect sense. It's exactly yeah, how they're operating. And in fact, yes. the most efficient way to do it. Yes, this is if, if the NSA had come to me and said, Steve, how, what should how did, we do? How would, how would I do this? Yeah. This is what I would design. Yeah. I would design this system. I would say you want to get, you know, you if you need to be, you need to keep this a secret. You want to get all the traffic coming in and out of Google. You get as close to Google as you can. You get on the router that is feeding Google and you clone 
all of the data. Yeah. And that's exactly and that's why it's called Prism is that now we're at, at this bandwidth level they're they're using fiber optic cables so it splits the light the the power drops by 50% down each of the splits because the power of the light has been split, but that's there's still plenty. Um, and so it's going to be received easily by the other end. And then it goes off to this secret room uh, controlled by the NSA. And it also fits what we heard because there was we heard that there was this notion, I mean, we heard of PRISM, that there was, that you can, or maybe it was Edward who said that you could task this equipment to find things. So there, so an wow, analyst smarter than just a collector. It's actually yes. sifting. Yes, yeah. uh, there, is, there is, and and I'm I'm looking here. If if the, the, if you if you see the link, it's Klein hyphen C uh, uh, Klein Deckel. Uh, it's cryptome dot org, cryptome dot org slash k l e i n hyphen d ecl.htm so it's klein's declaration um in there he he shows the documents about installing the splitter how to split it um all of the uh, technical details and he does cite the name of the company providing this they call it semantic analysis equipment so the idea is that an, huh. an analyst sitting in langley is able to task the Google tap to to select. I mean, it, this is a torrential remember, flood. Remember, this was years ago, though, and I would guess now because they have such high end uh, uh, storage and and uh, and processing, they probably just sent it all. Well, to they've they're they've center, they're readying right? five zettabytes. Yeah, they'll end up sending it to you, so Utah. Why filter it? We may miss right. something we want. Well, Let's precisely, save it just, all. Yeah, suck it you all. You never in. know what you might want. Yep. And again, having the history allows them to go back and do research on the past. So let me let me uh, let's get clear though. What is it that they have? This is no longer metadata. This is all data that isn't encrypted. Yes. yes. So yes. So now, at, at at this point, as far as we know, the use of of SSL encryption will withstand the NSA's attack. But they're I'm saving on, it anyway, <laughs> just in well, case. They're saving it because Down they the know the future, in the <laughs> right, future right. their computers will get stronger. Right. Maybe quantum computing technology right. will actually allow them to just collapse the 128-bit right. key. I'm uncomfortable with 128 bits. We really need to start thinking 256. And, and we'll talk about that soon on the podcast because... The protocols exist on SSL, but as we've spoken about the way SSL exists, both ends have to agree. And we got all these banks out there who are scoring Fs on their SSLlabs.com test because, you know, because they're not using strong encryption. And so the cipher strength has to be agreed to by each end. Right. But the point is, certainly a... Uh, there's a percentage of data that the NSA it is encrypted. They cannot read it. But... Any email coming into Google, any email leaving Google, which is to say any non-Gmail to Gmail communication does exit. And in fact, maybe it still goes if it's going off to a different uh, different physical data center in Google, it's going to go out over the Internet. I don't know if Google maintains encryption of email traffic between their data centers. But anything, essentially everything coming and going in and out of the companies that were named is probably now being tapped. 
Hmm. And, and PRISM is the technology that does it. It's sitting just upstream of these companies monitoring everything that they're doing. Everything, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that every of their users are doing. Anything not encrypted is, is subject to surveillance. Quite amazing. And uh, what you say now makes perfect sense. I think you're right. Yep. Uh, we don't know because... Uh, a anybody who knows probably is enjoined from saying anything by pretty strong right. federal the strictures. The only reason I can talk about it is that no <laughs> you don't one know. Has ever told me anything. Yes. <laughs> but what does make sense, and I think is interesting, is this is probably too technical for most lay observers to deduce. So they say have full access to servers. And while Google is certainly, you know, this, the engineers at Google are certainly smart enough to to understand that this is the risk. They're not allowed to say anything anyway. So Correct. they're going to say only what's strictly, tr you know, that they're allowed to say that's strictly true, which is they don't have access to our servers. Yes, and it's absolutely true. They do not. They Unfortunately, they have access to the pipe connecting need. your servers to the rest of the world. They don't need access to your yes, servers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because the press, in trying to explain this discontinuity between the formal statements that were immediately issued right. by these companies, you know, they were saying, well, they're parsing their words very carefully or they've got really good attorneys. It's like, no, they're absolutely not complicit in this. Right. The NSA has installed a tap in their connection to the Internet. Right. And the tap, I, I'll say again, it's on the Internet. It's, I mean, I don't know about the legality of this, but what I, I was chuckling to myself because... The NSA is doing this deliberately. Google did it by mistake with their when they were collecting unencrypted Wi-Fi with right. their mapping right. technology. Well, you know, so if you want to explain this to your grandma or a layperson, it's really something that I think any layperson can understand. You just say it's a it's an upstream tap. They're yes, they're tapping is. the internet. And as a result, they're where it, connects, where it connects to the to company, these, to these companies, to these companies. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and and for all we know, they're also tapping it where you connect to the Internet. So, you know, they can get you coming and going if they want. Well, yes, they would. Uh, and you see, again, being sympathetic to the need for intelligence, I get it that, right. that you know, that they chose these companies because they are major focal points. So a tap located there would give them the most bang for the buck. And the reason so we know is, these companies, this is one of the slides in that uh, slide deck that uh, Snowden, yes. Snowden released. Uh, yes. However, I have to think that really it goes much wider than this because if you're going to level one, you might as well just, you know, say who else connects through you. Well, Leo, we already know because the article that I read was an AT&T facility. This was tapping the so-called backbone. Right. This is the remember that the way these the at the very very top, we have the so-called tier 1 providers. And and they have and they have what's called peering relationships with like so like level 3 and AT&T and Sprint have peering relationships with each other where they are because they're peers and so they agree that they will send traffic to each other what we read in this testimony and on on this EFF page is this was the peering pipe of at AT&T yeah. going to its peers so they so did this it is, this is how they did yes, it this is the entire internet being yeah. tapped. Yeah. If you and were then a WorldNet user in 2007, they they were listening. Yeah. Um, or or if you if you happen to be at two distant locations and your traffic goes through AT and T on its way 
to another network, right. then it's present there. Right. And I, I just there, there's one more comment I wanted to make that I thought was I, I felt I mean I, I understood it, and that is that Europe is very unhappy over this. You know, we're sitting here and and the NSA is saying, and I don't believe them because how can I believe them now? They're saying we're only, I mean, their great caveat is that they're only uh, looking at foreign people. That's all they're technically allowed to look at. Well, it's not nonsense. Yes, that's nonsense. But even so, that means they're looking at everything outside the U.S. Well, that's half of this podcast (laughs) listeners, Leo. (laughs) And the FBI has the charter to do inside the U.S. and is presumably doing this with uh, the, uh, you know, the help of the NSA. Well, and I saw a little blurb yesterday. It said the the, uh, Finnish communications minister, Pia uh, Vitanen, has stated bluntly that the NSA may be breaking the laws of Finland according to the Finnish constitution capturing and reading emails or text messages without privileges is illegal i think it's uh, illegal in the us the tenant plans to take up the issue with the european commission wow. several european countries are apparently considering unleashing neely crows the feared oh, Europe, the feared european commissioner for digital agenda in an effort to fight back against the nsa's prism program Don't mess with crews that's for sure so hide under a desk <laughs> Oh, uh, wow. Um, the mind lastly, reels. Yes, go ahead. Lastly, uh, in reaction to this, a site has been put up that immediately, uh, uh, along with, with the EFF, stopwatching.us, stop watching us. Um, it, uh, it's taking signups. There's 63 companies that have already, or organizations that, that, that are behind this. Um, and uh, so I uh, suggest that anybody who's interested, they they got a really crappy uh, security certificate. I was disappointed in their in the security certificate for the site because it's an HTTPS site. Uh, I would like to see something better there. But stopwatching.us is something, uh, someplace that anyone can go who's interested. And uh, John Stewart is off for the summer directing a movie. So John Oliver is standing in for The Daily Show on Comedy Central. His opening piece, Monday Night, was wonderful. Basically, summed up the the political side of this uh, with the typical Daily Show comedy. So I wanted to recommend that to our listeners. Uh, it was really terrific. Uh, so if you can find the Daily Show from Monday, which would have been what the tenth of of June, uh, the beginning of it with John Oliver as the guest host filling in for John Stewart, was great. And yes, Leo, you're right. The mind reels, but at least now we know what's going on. The next step I would like, and maybe we'll do this on know-how, maybe you can do it too, is telling people uh, uh, some simple steps you can take to encrypt your email, encrypt your traffic. If you really, I mean, you can't hide who you're sending it to because that has to be public. Otherwise, it won't get there. Although I guess you could use um, hush mail or something like that and have uh, private addresses as well. But I think if I think this, is, you know, for a long well, time I used PGP and encouraged people to send me encrypted email. Nobody ever did it. Here's what's interesting: <laughs> is the the polls came out yesterday 56% morning. Six percent of Americans don't. I care. saw sixty two. Yeah, six sixty two versus thirty four percent of Americans say they are okay with this because it's protecting if, us against if terrorism. It, if it protects us against terrorism, right? 
And and then there's always the, the, the conundrum, well, if you don't have anything to hide, what do you care? I even heard a federal official say that this week. Uh, yeah. That nobody who's uh, nobody who's a law-abiding citizen should worry about this. So you know, I'm I was very annoyed that Google got into trouble. They did for inadvertently collecting unencrypted Wi-Fi, which was being broadcast to them in the air. When you know, here we have the NSA that has used prisms to split the optical cables going to these major companies to install local taps. Um, you know, just it, that does. There's something wrong there. Um, I understand the NSA's need for the data, but, uh, you know, in order to find bad guys. But they have to tell the truth. They, I mean, they have to tell Congress the truth. They don't have to tell me or you. They have to tell Congress because that's the only way that we that we have checks and balances. Well, and they may. They may have told the House Foreign Intelligence, and they, they may have told people this. Um, my, it's my my suspicion that... Some lawmakers, not all, know about it and have approved it. And uh, I think this is the problem, is that people want to be safe against terrorism and understand that this has to be done. And I think the fear is if the federal government admits to this, then the bad guys go, oh, well, that's no problem. We'll just use well, crypto and cat. Here's, here's what's really interesting, too, is imagine that you you have the dragnet over all phone communications, yeah. all telephony metadata. And three clever terrorists say, oh, well, we're going to avoid the system. We're going to get so-called burner phones, you know, temporary phones. And we're never going to give the phone number out. We're never going to dial any other phone except these three. And we're only going to use it to talk to each other. Well, how suspicious is that? <laughs> You'll immediately know. If yes, the NSA would find right. three little nodes with lots of connections among themselves, but nobody ever phoned into them and they never phoned out right. to anyone else. There's a little island there and that's something to look at. So, you know, this is phenomenally powerful, this so-called metadata, powerful information. And, and the, you know... The, as far as I know, Leo, this podcast is the first disclosure of what the NSA's PRISM program is, that it is a tap, a, an optical fiber tap on these companies. Um, I don't know what results from this, but I imagine now Congress will have some – will know how to ask some better questions. I hope so. And the, these companies will probably want to find out if this is going on. Yeah. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's his website if you want, if you want to spy on him. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he gives uh, away many, many wonderful security tools, including Shields Up. Make sure you check uh, your plug-and-play status there with the uh, Shields Up program. Make sure your router isn't releasing information to the outside world or access to your uh, inside network. Uh, you can also get uh, Spinrite. That's his bread and butter, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Uh, and uh, for people with bandwidth issues, the 16 kilobit version uh, of this show. And if you would like to send a transcript to your elected officials, that might not be a bad idea. And those transcripts are made by Elaine Ferris and made available on Steve's site as well, grc.com. Elaine's Next. a little under the weather at the moment. Oh, she sorry, said Elaine. that uh, she didn't know when we were going to get the audio. Uh, and uh, but if, if it came in time, then she thought she'd be able to start on it. So the, anyway, the, the point is that we will have full tr textual transcripts of the podcast, 
uh, in all of its glory uh, a couple days from now, uh, posted on GRZ. Good. Good. Uh, You also can go there to ask questions, and we will do a QA and a episode. Yep, I imagine we'll have lots of questions. We'll probably still be talking about this next week. Yeah, uh, and that will be uh, grc.com slash feedback if you'd like to pose a question to Steve Gibson. We've mentioned and before he's on Twitter, at SGGRC. Follow him there. I was going to say that I just tweeted five bit.ly links to these documents, to these to uh, some PDF forms and these redacted and redaction-filled-in documents that exist on the net uh if anyone's interested in additional information i mean it just it's riveting stuff really interesting yeah it really is thank you steve gibson we do this show every wednesday Uh, you can find us right here at 11 a.m pacific uh, 2 p.m eastern time 8 1900 utc on twit.tv do watch live a lot of fun and uh, you're welcome to visit us in studio as well we always have visitors people love to see you live steve uh, but if you can't, uh, we always have on-demand audio and video after the fact, not only on Steve's site, but high-quality audio MP3s and video as well, available at twit.tv slash SN or wherever you get your podcasts like iTunes. I think I'm going to be up maybe in August. Jen, oh. I think Jenny, Jenny's going to come up for to, to do her regular summer visit of friends, and I think I'm going to come up, and we're I'm planning to synchronize it with a Wednesday, so Good. I can do the podcast in studio with you, Leo. Great. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, it would be. I look forward to that, and I'll buy okay, dinner's friend. on me, or lunch at least. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Okay. We'll see you next Thank time you. on Security Now. Security Now.